Welcome to the Debit This, Credit That podcast with Wheeler Accountants located in San Jose, California. In this podcast, we discuss how to solve accounting challenges in both your personal life and your business. We take an energetic, tech-savvy approach to solving accounting challenges that steal your focus and your time. Now, on to the show with your tech-savvy accounting experts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Debit This, Credit That podcast by Wheeler Accountants with your hosts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. This is going to be part two on our tax planning for 2018 podcast, and let's go ahead and dive right in. Great. Well, we covered a lot of information in our last podcast, but uh, let's let's pick up where we left off. So we were talking about uh, the the state and local tax deductions and some strategies around that. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Roth conversions and exercise of stock options. Uh, we had mentioned that in the last podcast, and so wanted to touch on some strategies there and and what can be done uh, during tax planning time. Sure. Roth conversions and stock options are definitely some planning items for 2018 for this year. They've always been planning items near the end of the year, but they're a little different this year. So Roth conversions, you know, usually we're looking for a Roth conversion. We're talking about converting some pre-tax retirement assets. So a regular traditional IRA or like a regular 401k, converting it to a Roth. And when you when you do a conversion, you recognize taxable income on the amount that you convert and then the benefit there is that now you've paid tax on that income, so future withdrawals from that account are tax-free, including the earnings. So it can be a really big deal. I'm not a gigantic fan of Roth conversions unless we can do it for little to no tax cost. Just for many reasons I've covered before, just we don't know what future tax rates will hold. We don't know what your income situation in the future will be like and your revenue streams. We don't know what the tax law will be surrounding Roth accounts and that kind of thing. So too much uncertainty for me to want to pay a lot of tax on a conversion. But if we are going to do it, the year we want to do it is when we have low or negative income. If you have really low income, like you took a sabbatical or you retired and you have no income, or you have a gigantic loss from some disposition of some asset or something where it freed up a big loss, or you started a business, or you have losses from a business, something like that, that's a great Roth conversion year because then we can utilize some of that excess deductions or loss against the conversion income and ideally get to a point where we're paying no tax. Now, that's been the thing about Roth conversions the whole time. That part's not changed. What's changed is that under the old rules, we could do a Roth conversion now. We could aim a little high probably because why not? Because we don't know all the exact numbers when we're doing the conversion during the year. The conversion has to happen during the calendar year. And then we could claw back or recharacterize a portion of the conversion later up to the date we file our return the following year. So we had some wiggle room there to undo a little bit if for some reason we got hit with a higher income number than we thought or some deduction was smaller than we thought. We didn't have full visibility into the, the tax year. We can we could play with it and uh, undo a little bit. So the election needed to happen in 20 or in the calendar year, but the full amount did not need to be characterized as Roth. The, the conversion had to happen during the calendar year, but you could undo part of it and put it back in the account it came from, part or all of it. So you oh, could okay. undo whatever you wanted, basically. It's called a recharacterization, but it's basically an undo or a do-over. You know, okay. So you could undo a portion of it under the old rules. Now there's no more recharacterization. There's no more undo or redo. Oh, it's once either. You, once you convert, it's final. Okay. So 
Oh, another reason you could do it before in the past is if the Roth account dropped in value, then you could undo it. Because if you converted a higher number, you could just undo it and reconvert at a lower number if your account fell. Oh. So now you now you're stuck with the conversion. So you got to think more about it. You know, if we have a market crash, like, you know, after you convert, you know, sometime early next year, you're going to be feeling kind of, you know, bad about it. So that's a risk. Uh, also, if you aim high or you had some income number you weren't expecting hit you, you know, on December 30th, but before, after you did the conversion, we're, we're in trouble. So it's, it takes a little more importance here on year end planning to get all the numbers for the year in a little more accurate and dialed in. And maybe we don't be so aggressive on the conversion in terms of aiming high. Maybe we aim a little more conservatively now on our conversion amount. So we just got to be a little more careful on the conversion, but it's still something we can we can do and can be a really good tax planning tool to use near the end of the year. Just got to make sure we we do a little more carefully now. And especially in the last podcast, we talked about how the standard deduction had gone up. So if you are in a low income year then and you have that full standard deduction, that might be a good time to to take that Roth IRA. Exactly. Exactly. What about stock options? What kind of planning can be done for stock options near year end? And how does 2018 differ from 2017? You know, stock options, you you control the timing of uh, the tax event by when you choose to exercise your options. You have control over an aspect here. So it's a planning tool. Anytime we have control, it's a planning tool. So with the exercise of the options, we can pick when we want to exercise those options. There's two types of options. Generally, there's qualified and non-qualified, or they're referred to as incentive stock options, otherwise known as ISOs, or non-qualified stock options, or non-quals, or NQSOs, or NSOs. A lot of different <laughs> names. Um, <clears throat> Non-quals don't, we don't normally, those ones don't apply as much to the planning thing. They do a little bit. When you buy those ones, you usually do a same day sale and sell them right away because you have ordinary income on the exercise. So you get smacked with income right when you buy them and you generally just want to sell them and get the cash. Otherwise you're going to owe cash out of pocket for the taxes plus the cost of the shares. And most people don't, don't have that. There's not a lot of advantage to buying and holding a non-qual. The tax planning portion of that could be if you're a really low income year or a big loss year, go ahead and buy them and sell them because you're not going to have a big tax hit because it's going to add to income. But again, you're going to utilize some of those excess losses or deductions. You're going to be in good shape. So that one could, could be a good thing to think about accelerating income into this year. That's the opposite of the traditional planning. But when you're in a reverse situation where your deductions are high and your income is low, you want to do the opposite. You want to do the accelerated income deferred deductions. So that's non-quals. The bigger opportunity now is with the ISOs. When you buy an ISO or a qualified stock option, you don't have regular income when you buy it, but you do have income for AMT purposes. So under the old law, if we had a year where we were not going to be in AMT and you decided we're going to buy some ISOs, you could buy them, you get some AMT income, but you may not actually owe any AMT tax out of pocket. That'd be a really good thing to go ahead and buy those shares in that year. It's even way more pronounced now because under the new law, the threshold at which the AMT exemption amount that everyone gets now it doesn't phase out until you're over a million dollars of income, which before it started phasing out like at 150,000 of income or some absurdly low number for most people here in Silicon Valley when they're, you know, working for Google or Facebook and making right. a couple hundred grand, that kind of thing, you know. So n- everyone got hit with AMT before in, in that range in this area with all the deductions and everything else. Now they're probably not an AMT. So if you do have ISOs, 
And usually the strike price is pretty low because you usually only get ISOs like at an early stage kind of startup company or something or a smaller company. It'd probably be a great time to think about buying some before the end of the year because if the spread's gone up, if the company's looking good, if the 409A or the valuation is higher now, you know, that spread's going to be bigger. But it's not going to cost you very much to buy the shares because the strike price is low. And you can recognize AMT income, but you have a lot of wiggle room to recognize that income and not pay any AMT tax. So your only cost and risk there is just the actual cost of the shares, which is pretty low usually with the with the ISO. So doing year-end planning now to think about exercising some of those ISOs to buy and hold and start the long-term capital gains clocks on those, now that's a really good planning strategy and it's way bigger under the new law because of the change to the AMT and everything. So that's something we're definitely doing right now with several of our clients. We just did a plan Yesterday, I mean, this client can trigger a quarter million of AMT income without having any AMT. So that's a good amount of shares this person can acquire and they're not going to have a tax cost out of pocket. Whereas under the old rules, if they bought that and they had 250 grand of AMT income, the AMT rate was 28%. They're going to owe 28% tax in the quarter million. They got to pay up front before they sold the shares. And that was what buried people during the first dot com was all the ISOs at high valuations paying a lot of AMT up front. You know, if you can get away by buying them and not having to pay that AMT up front, that's where you that's where you want to be. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Can you remind our listeners about the long term holdings and and what what um what long term is defined as and what that would do to tax rates? Yeah, with the ISOs, you know, if you can buy and hold those for over a year and sell them, you have a qualifying disposition that you get. You basically get long term capital gains rates when you sell them which, you know, the max rate on that is 23.8%, or it can all be as low as 15% or, or 0% in the bottom bracket, but usually between 15 and 23.8%, much better than the ordinary income rates where you're probably in the 20 to 30 plus percent range up to 37%. So buying and holding ISOs, getting long-term treatment is, you know, pretty preferable to having ordinary income treatment. And that's, that's why you want to buy and hold those ones early versus the non-quals I talked about. Those are ordinary income when you buy them. So, you're hit with ordinary income up front. There's not a lot of sense in hanging on to them. That makes a lot of sense. That's a great strategy. You'd mentioned a little bit in our last podcast about loss harvesting. And I know that this was a tactic that that's used often in planning where we go through our investment portfolio and kind of look at where the losses are and maybe take those losses to offset some income. Um, is that still a good plan for 2018? Yeah, it's a it's been a good plan for most years, except for those backwards years where tax rates were going up and you wanted to defer the deductions. But, you know, it's another one of those accelerate deductions thing is loss harvesting. So if you have securities in your portfolio and they're sitting there at a loss and you haven't sold them yet, you haven't realized the loss. So you're not able to actually deduct it until you sell the securities. So if you have other capital gains from other investments or anything else, you want to try and harvest your losses or sell the securities at a loss right now so you can use those losses against the gains and help offset them a little bit. We haven't seen a lot of this the past couple of years because people didn't have losses because the market just went up, 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 up. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but now that we're back to normal, normal volatility, which is what this year is, and there is some little up and down, and we've actually seen some dips in some of the, you know, the FANG stocks, the Facebook, Apple, Google, that kind of stuff here, Netflix. Um, now that some of that stuff has pulled back a little bit recently from the highs, people may have some losses or they may have losses in other stocks. Uh, it'd be a good time to evaluate your portfolio and sell things at a loss. 
the only thing you got to watch out for there is the, the wash sale rule. So if you have an investment advisor, they're probably aware of this one. But if you sell something at a loss, you can't buy it back for 30 days. Otherwise, that loss is going to be disallowed. So if you do sell stuff and you want to recognize the loss for tax purposes, you got to uh, be in cash for 30 days or you need to invest in some other security besides that one. So it's just a security by security basis. But you can't go back and buy the same thing you owned within 30 days to make sure you get that loss. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, I think that we should spend some time on self-employed individuals and how the new tax laws are going to affect them. We have seen a ton in the news about the uh, pass-through deduction, and there's tons of questions and uh, would love to dive in and and get your input on on the pass-through deduction. How much time you got? Buddy? All right. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a, one of the bigger changes in the tax law. So, one of the big talked about things was the reduction in the corporate income tax rate. Uh, we used to be at thirty five percent. Now it went down to twenty one percent. That's a big reduction. What Congress did to avoid having everyone immediately just incorporate and go to a corporate structure to get the lower rate, they created a roughly equivalent offsetting um, deduction for uh, pass-through entities. And there's been a lot of confusion on it. It's still not fully settled. This is one of those areas that's probably going to be like litigated and, you know, be clarified for years. So it's not going to be perfect because there's a lot of gray area in here. But it applies to any sort of uh, entity or business type where it flows down to the individual level, basically. So... You don't need to actually have an entity set up. That's one of the first considerations. People thought they had to like go form an LLC or something immediately. You don't need to do any of that kind of stuff. If you're a sole proprietor, you can still get this deduction. If you just own rental property outright, you may get the deduction. That's another thing on the rental stuff. But um, also applies to partnership interests or S-corporation interests. Either one of those, those are considered pass-through entities where the income from the entity will actually flow down to the individual partners or shareholders and they'll report and pay tax on that income at their personal level. So what Congress did, they created this qualified business income deduction. It's a 20% deduction that arises basically out of thin air. So the result is you only pay tax on 80% of the income that's qualified business income from one of these sources instead of 100% of the income. So the effective rate ends up being something like, it's like the high 20% range, basically, if you're in the top bracket. You know, if you're in the top bracket, 80% or 37% is how much you're going to pay the tax on at that rate. So it's still higher than the corporate 21% rate, but, you know, it's not as much of a discrepancy anymore. And the corporation does have double taxation. So, you know, these things kind of, you know, you got to figure out what you're going to do here. But there's so much planning opportunity now around this deduction and what structure to be that we're doing a lot of that right now with our clients trying to figure out what's the what's optimal the best strategy thing to be. As with everything, there's some limitations on this. Pay <laughs> Here we go. To. Limitation. Yeah. I guess the first couple thresholds to keep in mind, and I'll just do it for married taxpayers because it's a little easier just to do that part for now. But if you're curious, obviously ask us. If you're below $315,000 of taxable income, you don't need to worry about any limitations or anything else. If you have net business income or net pass-through income, you're going to get the 20% deduction. And it's net. It's not gross. Net, not okay. gross. So um, it's going to be, you know, 
the lesser of 20% of your net business income or like your basically your taxable income. So, um, <clears throat> or 20% of your taxable income, I believe. So you're not gonna really going to have any limitations there. You're going to be totally fine. If you're between 315000 and 415000 it gets incredibly complicated. And there's a bunch of like, you know, it feels like circular calculations, but they're not. But <laughs> it depends on a couple of things. There's two different limitations. One is a specified service business limitation. So if you are in a specified service business, and some of them are enumerated in the code, such as accountants, oh. attorneys, I know, oh. I know, accountants, attorneys, um, you know, medical professionals. There's a few others that are enumerated there. Fin- financial professionals, they don't get this deduction. So if you're generally in a service business, and this includes a consultant too, um, you're you're going to start phasing out on your QBID deduction in that 315 to 415 taxable income range. Now, it's not AGI, it's taxable income. It's a difference there. So it's after your itemized deductions or your standard deductions. So let's keep that in mind because there's a planning opportunity there. So if you're between that range, you're starting to lose out in some of the deduction. If you're above $415,000 and you're a, you're a specified service business, you don't get any of the new 20% pass-through deduction. You don't, you don't get any of it. So you're definitely not getting any. It doesn't matter about anything else. Just zero deduction there. So now you're back to normal ordinary income rates. You're like a W-2 person or something else. It's, there's no special rules for you there. So if you're over 415, it's not going to apply to you on a service business or a service business income stream. Now, if you are now the other limitation, sorry, the other limitation is going to be based on either W2 wages paid inside the business, or there's an alternate one that's based on W2 wages and a portion of the unadjusted basis of the property inside the trader business. So We'll go over each one of those. The first one is the wage limitation. So, again, between 315 and 415, the wage limitation starts to kick in. And that one basically will limit us to 50% of the wages paid in the business is going to be our, our uh, one of our caps here. So, we'll get either 20% of our net business income or 50% of the W-2 wages we pay in the business. So, if you have no employees in your business, then you have 50% of zero is zero. Right. So, you're going to get a zero deduction because you don't have any W-2 wages paid. And if you're over $415,000 of taxable income, that's your limit there and you're going to get zero QBID. So say it's a, a rental activity or something and there was no wages paid to anybody. You're not going to have any wages paid. You'd get no deduction under that limitation because you'd have 50% of zero is zero. So zero on limitation, zero wages paid, zero QBID deduction. That's why they came up with an alternate limitation also. So, if you can't meet the 50% of W-2 wages paid limitation, there's one where it's 25% of W-2 wages paid plus 2.5% of the unadjusted basis of property in the trader business. And the qualifying property is defined on stuff with the useful life. I think it's uh, 10 years or more. Certain five-year property like equipment stuff's not going to apply, but like real property would and those kind of things. So that one's basically put in place for like real estate is what I'm thinking. Right. <laughs> so if you over that 415, you may have no wages paid in the real estate business, but you do have two and a half percent of the unadjusted basis of the building or something, you will now get some benefit there. So oh God. it's actually, yeah, so two and a half percent, you know, of a million dollar building is 25 grand, then you're going to get $25,000 cubit deduction against your rental income. 
you know, the lower of that or 20% of the net income from the, the rental activity, for instance. So those are some of the limitations that come into a play there. But to keep it in mind a little easier, it's 315,000 taxable income is where it starts to phase out. And 415 is where the limitations definitely Completely. apply and in full. And there's no wiggle room in between. So we want to get under 315 of taxable income. And that's where there's some planning opportunities here. Um, because it applies to taxable income and not AGI, you can make certain deductions that's going to lower your taxable income, like doing charitable. So if you did a really, say you were in the 360 taxable income range or something, but you, you, you want to do a lot of charitable giving, you could do a big charitable donation this year and push your taxable income down to 315 or below. Mm. Now you have no limit on your qubit deduction. So you're not only going to see a tax write-off from the charitable deduction of 50 grand, you're also going to get more of the qubit. So it's like you're boosting your deduction amount a little bit by doing that. Likewise, if you can control the timing of revenue or expenses and you can bring your income down for this year so you get the deduction where you wouldn't have got it otherwise, that could be a really good move. So under the new law for businesses, there's full expensing on equipment and like large, you know, SUV type vehicles and stuff. So you could go buy a Suburban before the end of the year, or if you got to buy a new piece of machinery for your equipment or something, you can write off the whole thing this year. They may get your income down below the threshold. Now you can get that full deduction thing. So, you know, there's planning opportunities there where if you do it right, you may be able to get some of the deduction and take advantage of it. And I'm guessing that has to be done before year end. Yeah, well whatever deduction we can do before year end. One of the ones we can do after year end is some of the retirement planning stuff. So if you're doing retirement plans, some can be set up and funded after year end. Some can be set up, have to be set up before year end, but can be funded after year end. But if you do a big retirement contribution to like a step IRA or a solo 401k or something, or a 401k with a profit sharing and cash balance plan, whatever you decide to do, if you fund a bunch of money into one of those, that's a deduction for the prior year, even though you make the contribution after the tax year. And again, that may be able to lower your AGI and your taxable income and let you take advantage of that being below that threshold and actually getting some of the QBID write-off. So um, just some planning opportunities there. And then the only other one I probably think we should cover now because there's you know so much on this topic, but it's really an individual conversation, is with S-corporations. You know, with those, there's always been a tax advantage where you pay yourself a wage as the shareholder owner of the S corporation and you pay payroll tax on that, but mm -hmm. the income earned above and beyond that, there's no payroll taxes that apply. Well, now you got to be more careful and you really want to get the W2 income down as low as possible, but you know, not too low where the IRS gets pissed at you. But if you lower your W2 income, then you have more of the pass through income. That's more income. that's going to get the qubit deduction. So you want to really try and maximize it. And we have a magic number that we can share with you if you call us where you hit for the perfect number of W-2 wages where you're maximizing as a single shareholder owner as corporation. There's a number percentage wise where if you're, you know, smart, you can figure it out, I'm sure. But if you where you hit where you can maximize your qubit deduction. So um, we want to be looking at that kind of stuff before the end of the year, making sure we do the proper amount there to get to hit the magic number, whether it's doing a bonus to get to that number or whatever. We want to do it by the end of the year. So that's another Super important timing planning thing is getting the Cuba deduction right. And with S corporation shareholders, like especially sole shareholders, it's a, it's an important one. Sole owner S corps. So this sounds like an incredible planning opportunity for, for self-employed people. Yeah. Uh, self-employed people should see a pretty big reduction in tax under the new 
law change with this new Cuba deduction. It can be really good for a lot of people. And uh, it also may, you know, give you a little push push or nudge towards maybe going into business for yourself versus being a W-2 employee with the way some of the changes now really favor self-employed people, you know, even more than before. So something to keep in mind. Interesting. Do you think that was part of the the tax law changes to encourage people to? No, I don't think it was. <laughs> by <laughs> okay, <design>. it was <laughs> just. But uh, it, I think it's an unintended consequence. Mm-hmm. And I, I am seeing a fair amount of my clients that are getting closer to retirement age where, you know, we're finding it's a good combination where one spouse works a W-2 job and they have bennies, you know, yep. so they have health benefits and that kind of stuff. The other one, you know, a lot of times you're getting these buyout packages from their companies because they're a highly compensated employee. They cost a lot to keep there. You know, they're getting closer to retirement, so they'll buy them out, pay them severance. Then they'll hire them right back on as a contractor. <laughs> right. And they can maybe <laughs> go back and work at like a lower a lower income level, you know, go part time or something. They kind of want to work less anyway. So now they can be self-employed and now... You know, boom, we have so many opportunities. We can do a solo 401k. We can write off the car. We can do a home office. We can write off, you know, office supplies and expenses and that kind of way. We have a lot of opportunities now. And if you stay below that 315, you get the Cuba deduction, too. You can shelter a ton of that consulting income from tax and, you know, have better work life balance and be working less and everything else. So there's a lot of a lot of benefits there for people in that category. And that's something to consider or at least think about. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, one last topic that I wanted to, to cover before we wrap this up is um, you had mentioned some about long-term giving and gifting. Is this something that's urgent for this uh, t- tax year? And should this be done before uh, the end of the calendar year? Yes and no. Okay. So the estate and gift tax rules change substantially, mostly the uh, estate you know, exclusion amount, the lifetime exclusion is now much higher. It's over $11 million a person or $22 million for a married couple. So that's a really huge change. That's a, that used to be a little over $5 million before around five and a half. So it doubled. So now under $22 million of an estate, you don't have an estate tax problem at all. So that's definitely a big change. But if you are over, you know, or you, you anticipate you're going to have an estate tax problem, then you may want to be looking at some of the estate planning strategies. And usually a lot of those revolve around gifting. So making taxable gifts where you gift more than the annual exclusion amount fixes or freezes in value a gift at the time you make the gift. And that gets added back into your estate later on. If you didn't have this rule and you knew you were going to die tomorrow, you could give away all your stuff the day before you died. And then you'd have nothing in your estate and no estate tax. So the IRS basically says, any taxable gift you make, it's added back into your estate when you die. So, you know, you can't just give all your stuff away and not pay estate tax. But the advantage of gifting is if you gift now and something's worth a million dollars and you have a million dollar taxable gift, but it grows to four or five million by the time you die, the appreciation of the three to four million increase is, is outside of your estate. But the one million stays in your estate. That was the value of the time you made the gift. And you have to add that back. So, with the increased exclusion amount now, you can make larger gifts and use up some of your lifetime gift tax credit and not pay any gift tax now out of pocket or any estate tax, basically. So you can make larger taxable gifts now to you know kids or grandkids if you're in one of those situations and uh, start getting that appreciation out of your estate. You have more room to do it. If you before you made taxable gifts when the amount went up to like five million each and you maximized it any additional gifts would have been taxable. You would have paid gift tax on the when you made the gifts. But now you have more wiggle room. You can do more gifting. So 
you can give additional up to 11 million a person each, which, you know, is a lot of money, obviously. But if you're way over the estate tax limit, you want to be taking a look at doing some taxable gifting so you can, you know, really get that out of your estate and get the appreciation now. And you're going to save a ton on taxes over your lifetime by uh, minimizing transfer taxes. But the other thing that's like kind of a more urgent thing is we're getting to the end of the year and each each person you can give each person fifteen thousand dollars a year. Is that what the standard? Yeah. From each you and your spouse. And that's the annual gift exclusion amount where there's no gift tax consequences. There's no taxable gift. So that's a yearly amount. And so if you haven't done a gift yet for this year and you do have an estate tax problem or you're, you think you might, you know, doing annual gifts of the kids and grandkids is a really good idea. And um well, depends on family circumstances, of course. But <laughs> you know, if you're everyone's on the up and up, then doing the annual gifts, you know, thirty thousand if you're married, can really help you, you know, kind of bleed your estate down over time and get money in your estate. There's no, there's no add back in for those amounts, so you can definitely do that and make the annual gifts. And because those are a calendar year thing, you you got to do it before the end of the year. You don't get to take advantage of it. Okay, so that might be an urgent. uh, Yeah, so it's 15 this year. I think it's 15 still next year. It gets indexed for inflation every once in a while. It was 14 last year, so it's up to 15 for 2018, and I think it's 15 again for 2019, but that's where we're at. Great. Well, that is a lot of information for the 2018 tax planning. I think that our listeners have a a lot to work with, and and sounds like uh, our clients uh, should be reaching out if they're in any of these situations where tax planning might be beneficial to them. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to add before before we wrap this up? I don't think I can talk anymore. (laughs) Well, after that uh, qualified business income deduction uh, section, I'm sure you're pretty exhausted. It it was uh, pretty uh, in-depth. So thank you you very much for that. (laughs) That's all for today's episode of the Debit This, Credit That podcast. As always, if you have any questions, you can contact your Wheeler Accountants Preparer or submit a question online at our website in the Ask Wheeler section at the bottom of the page. Please remember to follow us on social media for regular updates at Wheeler CPAs and on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening as we help you solve for accounting.